Mic's on. Oh, there it is. Morning. I'm a little, I'm a little bit nervous. Or is it nervousness? Or is it excitement? I don't know. They kind of feel the same way. But I do have several reasons to be excited. Obviously, thank you, Kyle, for introducing me. I'm excited because this is the first time I'm preaching here. And hopefully it goes well by the Spirit of God. By God's power, it does go well. Uh, but another reason why I'm excited is because we've been going through this theme, this sermon series, about a church on fire, right? And for those people on the outside coming in, when you talk about a church on fire, they might start getting worried because they might start assuming we're talking about we're a church full of pyromaniacs, right? Uh, but that's not the case. Generally, when we talk about a church being on fire, we talk about a church that is alive, right? A church that's on the move, a church that's growing, a church that's spreading. And fortunately for me, the, the passage that sort of I fell into, the passage that we're going to be looking into today, uh, really exemplifies how God does that, how God sets the church on fire, right? And so before we go into uh, the passage itself, uh, let me pray again. We can never get too tired of praying. So why don't you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you because it's no mistake, it's no coincidence that any one of us are here. We are here because you brought us here. And so, Father, for this day, I pray that you open our hearts to receiving your word. I pray that you give us the strength, that you empower us with your Holy Spirit to answer your call and your instructions and your commandments. And give us wisdom, Father, to hear your word, to digest it, to take it in, and to bring it outside of these church doors. In your mighty name, amen. Okay, so follow along with me. You have the verse uh, there. You'll have it on the screen too, but it's kind of tiny. So for those who brought their Bibles, uh, you're rewarded. You know, you get to... You get to bring it closer to your face. We're brought in, you know, if you've been following us through the past few weeks, we've been talking about how God had just opened up the church to the Gentiles. And that's important for us because many of us are Gentiles. We're not born into the Jewish family. We're not born into the family uh, of Israel, into any tribe, which makes us a Gentile. So, this sort of was the pivot point for us as non-Jews. We're welcomed into the church of Christ in a very powerful way. And so that's where we sort of left off in the past few weeks. And we're picking up here verse 19 in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the, uh, the Greek Jews, or the Greeks, sorry, also preaching the word of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God, he was, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. 
For he was a good man, Barnabas was, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many of people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus uh, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Interesting. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending, uh, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Thank you, Lord. Now, what we just saw, right, was how the church opened up for the Gentiles. We saw the Jewish believers going all over the world. They were scattered all over the world, and they started sharing the gospel to us, to the outsiders, to people who didn't grow up hearing about God. They now heard about it, and a lot of people came to turn to the Lord, which is this amazing thing, right? Because it's incredible enough to see that God has done this before, right? It's incredible enough that we're talking about events that happened 2,000 years ago and how it's affecting us today. It's incredible enough that that's happened. It's doubly incredible when we think about if God had done it before, well, he certainly can do it again, right? And if God has done it before and if he's done it again, what's stopping him from doing it here with us, through us? Now, before we ask God to stoke the fires in the church of Emmanuel, right, why don't we're going to explore how God exactly transformed the church. How God transforms the church from death into life, shame into glory, doctrine into action. So our passage, it actually opens up by bringing us up to speed with what happened after the death of Stephen. If you guys remember, uh, Pastor Kyle actually preached about uh, Stephen last month, right? And we, were, we got to know who Stephen was by his life. He was marked by passion. He was marked by faithfulness. He served up until the very end. But what I want us to really take a look at, what I want us to home in on, is the response of the church, right? The response of the church is unique because the way that Luke describes it, he uses a particular word. Now, Luke, uh, when, when he describes the, the response of the church, he describes it as a scattering, right? Which to us, that's, that's not a really unique word, but for a first century believer, the idea of a scattering would ring bells into the hearts of believers. Why? Because the, the word scattering, you could see it on the slide there, it's, the word is actually diaspiro, right? And its root is found in, in, the, in the root word diaspora, 
which means to scatter. Again, for us, that might not mean much. But for a first century Jew who came to believe in Jesus and who's now reading about the response of, of the church after Stephen dies, you're go- your heart is pumping. You're wondering, is this the end of the church? Why? Because the most notable use of the word scatter, diaspora, came from this part in in, uh, Israel's history when God used Babylon to drive out the Jews out of the promised land. For them, the word diaspora, the word to scatter, has connotations. It means defeat. It means um, embarrassment. It means divine punishment. It For those who have read the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, for many people, it meant death. This idea to scatter was a frightening term for believers back then. But what's interesting is that what we were expected to see, you know, this, we disperse, we scatter, we we sort of uh, wither away. What we actually see is the opposite effect, you know. For the Jewish council, when they killed Stephen, they wanted us, the church, to feel defeated. You know, in, in, in their mind, we just killed one of their most prominent members. And now they know, the Christians know, that if they continue to do the same thing, we're going to kill them too. So when they saw the Christians scatter all over the world, when they, when they saw the, the church numbers in Jerusalem shrink, they were patting themselves on the back. They were like, we did it. Easy as pie. We killed Jesus. We killed Stephen. Now, we know, now they know we mean business. But the response of the church was the opposite. The response of the church instead was more evangelism, more outreach, more passion, and more fervor for the kingdom of God. What we saw in the church wasn't a decrease of these things, but an increase. Now, in the next slide, we have this phrase by a Christian theologian. His name is uh, Tertullian. That's right. And he's famous for coining the phrase, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he meant by that was whenever he saw Christians be persecuted, whenever he saw Christians be killed, instead of the church shrinking, it blew up. A curious thing because Tertullian, before he became a theologian, he was a lawyer, right? In his pocket, he had arguments against any kind of faith. He had arguments against any kind of case that goes against his own worldview. But the thing that turned his head wasn't Christian arguments. It's when he saw that as Christians were being round up in Colosseums, as as they were being persecuted, as they were being killed, instead of the usual criminal's death, What he saw was a group of people who huddled together, prayed, and worshipped God to the very end. 
The point of Kyle's message last month wasn't that we glorify dying, but that we glorify um, God through our day-to-day lives. And these Christians, the reason why people's heads turned to Jesus in witnessing these people uh, being persecuted is because they were able to show people how Jesus transformed their lives, not just in times of adversity, which is important, but in our day-to-day, in our routine, when they go to work, when they're out in the streets walking to the grocery stores, when they're out at school, they're showing people Jesus' transformative power, not just at the very end, but from the beginning and all throughout. See, God uses Stephen's death, God uses death to transform it into life. Stephen's death became the salvation of many others because it inspired people. The people who knew Stephen knew how he lived and knew how he died. And in doing that, it lit a fire. So much so that when they went to their respective homes, these, uh, when they went to escape to different towns, they didn't just put their Christianity in a closet. They brought it out. They shared They opened their doors. They talked about Jesus because that power is real and that power flows through them in the same way that it flowed through Stephen. Fortunately for us, with this this idea of being scattered, we follow a God of victory rather than defeat. We follow a God that transforms death into life, something that in, in this world is tragic and the experience really is, whether you're a believer or not, is tragic, God could turn into life, into an opportunity for people to come to know him. A tangent that I didn't want to um, pass by also, is really unrelated, was... Um, When you read through this passage, you know, it's easy for us when we're following through the Gospels and through the book of Acts. We see the names of Paul and and Barnabas and Peter and Jesus a lot. And, And for us, that makes sense, right? For us, it's like, oh, those are the big guys. They can do big things. They're the ones bringing the numbers in. And we do that here today, too, right? Because we can name the big names. Billy Graham, we can name C.S. Lewis. Uh, who else is big? Rick Warren, maybe. Uh, Francis Chan. We can name all these big Christians. But what I love about our passage is that it doesn't describe necessarily Barnabas and Paul going to Cyrene and Cyprus and Antioch and all of these places. And they're the ones who established the church in these areas. We see it's these nameless, faithful believers who are spreading the the gospel, who are growing the church. What we see is that it's, in, in as much as the pulpit up here is important, the people in the pews have always been a driving force in the growth of the church. It's you guys, including me, I'm not just, I'm not making a you, us and them, but it's everyone's effort 
that brings people. It's everyone's effort that turns heads towards Jesus. It's everyone. That's a tangent. Our next section of the passage, God turns shame into glory, right? What, what do we read? It, it talks about Barnabas uh, bringing in Paul and then they come into uh, the church in Antioch and they start encouraging them. It starts teaching them and discipling them. One of the ways that God turns shame into glory is the mere involvement of Paul. If you're wondering why I'm saying Paul, Paul and Saul are the same person. I'm just so used to saying Paul, so I'm going to stick with it. Is the involvement of Paul. God turns shame into glory in so many ways, and in one way we see that through Paul. If you guys know the conversion story of Paul, you know, he was not a nice guy to the church. When we're introduced to him in the book of Acts, he was actually hunting down Christians. He was killing Christians if he couldn't imprison them, right? That was his life. That was his personal mission. But when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, his life changed. His heart changed towards Jesus. He went from a Christian hunter into a believer and then into an, an evangelist, right? And so when Paul has this change of heart, when Paul becomes a believer, he goes to Jerusalem and he starts to look for the church. He wants to join the church. And the church, their natural response would be like ours, is like, well, how, hold on. How do we know you're for real, right? Their response to Paul is sort of like what we see in the Terminator, you know? These Terminators, they're assassin machines, but they're dressed in human flesh. They're looking at Paul and they're saying, okay, yeah, you say you're a Christian, but just a few days ago I heard you, you threw my brother into jail, so you gotta, you gotta help me out here. You gotta close this distance that I have in my mind. And it wasn't until Barnabas throws his name out there, throws his reputation, but he also throws his livelihood out there because if Paul does happen to be the Terminator that they suspect, then Barnabas just ousted himself and risked himself to death or, or imprisonment. Barnabas throws himself out there and he gives Paul a second chance, right? He goes out there and he, not only does he, does he meet Paul over coffee, <laughs> but he also convinces everyone else to give him a second chance. Now we're going to talk more about Barnabas later on, but what I really want to home in on about Paul is that he has a dark past. In fact, in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 1 verses uh, 12 over to 16, he actually talks about this. Now, this is in retrospect, but he's talking to Timothy and he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. 
the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is talking to someone who looks up to him, right? Someone who respects him, to Timothy. And he's bearing his heart out saying, I was the worst person. I persecuted the church. I, I thought it was the right thing to do. I was killing brothers and sisters as much as I could. Throwing them into prison. But in what you might expect to be something that Paul is ashamed of or embarrassed by or feeling guilty of, every time he mentions his dark past, he does this also in Galatians and Philippians, he does so with humility and dignity. And he does so boasting the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when we throw our sin when we throw our past, the things that used to define us, at Jesus' feet, Jesus exchanges that for his glory. This is why confession and repentance is such an essential aspect to our faith. This idea that the sins of our past and the things that we've done wrong, our failures, our shortcomings, our insecurities, these are things that we can throw at Jesus' feet. We can confess them to Jesus. To anyone mature in the church, we can confess. And Jesus will convert it into his glory. The fact that Paul can talk about his failures as a victory, this is the transformative power of God, turning shame into glory, shame into his glory, so that any one of us who came through these doors who thought, oh, you know, I've messed up so often, I, I've made so many mistakes, I used to do this, I used to do that, I'm defined by who I used to be, or maybe even who I am to this day. You can find confidence that if you throw it at Jesus' feet, when you confess it, He'll turn it into his glory. He'll give you a new name. He'll give you a new reputation. He'll transform your life. That's something that Jesus can do. Oh, I'm like looking for my notes. Earlier this week, not this week, <laughs> earlier this year, I've been uh, reading this book. It's called uh, Hiding Place. Uh, and I've been, st uh, not studying, but uh, really learning the story of this uh, Dutch Holocaust survivor. Her name was Corrie Ten Boom. And um, the reason why she's so famous is because her family on the onset of Nazi occupation in the Netherlands, her family took it upon themselves, inspired by God's love, to start housing and being a refuge for runaway Jews, people trying to escape from the Nazis, right? They did this for over... Four years, they were able to establish a network. They saved up to and around 800 Jews, their family and the people who were able to risk their lives to work with them. Now, eventually, 
Corey and her family, they were caught. They were brought into prison and into interrogation. And during those interrogation, her dad died. And ultimately, Corey and her sister Betsy, they were thrown into a concentration camp along with the Jews, a place called Ravensbrück. Now, they were there for a bit over a year where they would work, they would be abused, they would be, um, they would be belittled, all of, these, all of these terrible things you can imagine. As time went on, Betsy, Corey's sister, actually dies of failing health in, the, in this concentration camp. And yet, during their time there, they still had it in them to gather uh, anyone who would come to pray and to worship God. They would smuggle Bibles in and they would actually welcome people into the, into the fold of God before they would die. Now, a week before all of the women were killed, Corey was actually saved through a clerical error, right? She, they released her saying, oh, sorry, you shouldn't have been there. And so when she returned home, all of the other women were actually sent into the gas chambers to die. Now, Corey, when she got home, she continued the work of her family, letting her home be a refuge for people who were affected by the war. And eventually, she came on, uh, her family's works became famous all around the world, and churches started inviting her to speak, right? And so one church that she went to, a church in Germany, Munich, she went to and, and she started to preach the forgiveness of God. And one of her quotes is up there actually right now. Let me find it here because I can't read it up here. Uh, up here. <laughs> when we confess our sins, uh, you're reading with me? If I can read it, you can read it. God casts them into the deepest ocean gone forever. Incredible, right? The fact that she can preach that in Germany after World War II. Now, what's even crazier is that after the sermon, what usually happens is that people stand up silently and then they leave the church through the back. But in that particular day, she noticed a man coming into the pews to approach her. And as he got close, she actually recognizes him because he was a man who, was, who served as a guard in the concentration camp that she was thrown into. And now, when she recognizes him, her blood froze. She, she mentions how what felt like moments, uh, what, what should have been moments in real life felt like hours for her because as he approached her, he said, wow, what a great message to know that my sins are thrown into the ocean and disappears forever. And then he confesses to her, I was actually a guard at the concentration camp that you mentioned. And he says, now I, having since, I've become a Christian. I've asked God for forgiveness, and I know that he's forgiven me. Then he extends out his hand, and he says, I just want to ask if you would forgive me too. And so for Corey, 
Can you imagine? This is the place where her sister died. This was the reason why her family had to risk themselves for imprisonment, torture, capture. And here's this guy who doesn't even recognize her asking for forgiveness. She holds out her hand all the while praying. She says, Father, I can move my hand, but you have to supply the feeling. And when she extends her hand to meet his, she felt the overwhelming power of God overflow through her. And she felt that forgiveness. She felt that acceptance. She felt the peace that comes from what we often read about every week and every time we go to community group. Now, the same divinely inspired love, the power of forgiveness, the miracle of acceptance that drove Corey that day and throughout all her days is the same one, part and parcel, to what we see with Barnabas. Barnabas is the kind of guy who doesn't get the spotlight shown on him often at Scripture. But when he does, he makes an impression. One of the things that Luke uh, says about him is that he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of, uh, and full of faith in Jesus Christ. And what's crazy is that those might seem like cheap lip service to us, but he's the only one in the New Testament described that way. And it's not hard to see why. Because, as you remember with, with, um, with Paul's conversion, Barnabas is the one to set himself out there and accept Paul. He's the one who stuck his neck out for Paul. He's the one who gave Paul a second chance and encouraged everybody else to do the same. He not only put his reputation, as we talked about before, but he put his life on the line for that. And that, that's not the only time. When uh, Barnabas and Paul were about to go on a missionary journey together, Mark, a person named Mark, wanted to join him. And he already abandoned uh, Barnabas and Paul once before. And so Paul didn't want Mark to come with them. And Barnabas says, no, I want to give this guy a chance. He does it again. Even to the point where Barnabas and Paul separated over this issue. They went on different directions. And yet the church was made better for it because eventually Paul and Mark reconcile. Paul actually recommends Mark to Timothy later on in ministry, saying that he's a great help to him. Paul, of course, as we know, later went to um, all around the world preaching the gospel. Mark went on to help out, and if we're to believe tradition, he might have also went on to uh, write the book, the gospel of Mark. All of these things made possible because Barnabas knew the heart of God to forgive, to accept, and to welcome in people who feel ashamed and turn that shame into glory. I had another thing. I'm completely lost in my notes. <laughs> Goodness.
As much, oh, here we are. As much as we all want to be like Paul, having that courage to give our past, give our sins to Jesus, church, I encourage you, we also need to be like Barnabas, who gives people second chances, who, when you see in the peripheral, this person, this family, this group, are sitting by themselves or they're sitting hunched over, strangers to you. We need to be like Barnabas who welcomes them in, who reaches out, and who's patient with them also. We can be both. We don't have to be, I'll I'll be Paul, you can be Barnabas, right? We can be both, but we need to have that in our church. We need to be Welcoming, again, that's what turns people's heads to Jesus. We need to be a church that encourages and elevates one another so that if a stranger comes in through our doors, they don't look at another church as like, oh, it's just just another Sunday. But instead, they see a people who are transformed on fire for Jesus. This kind of togetherness is exactly what Jesus was praying for in John chapter 17. This unity, this kind of thing that brings people in, that brings us all together with one voice and one mind. A church where God transforms shame into glory is a church that grows both deep and wide. Oh, look at that. More than just our past, the way that God turns shame into glory is how what the world might deem a shame, shameful, God could twist that around, right? One thing that we see uh, in our passage right now is the origin of our name, the name Christian. Now, for us, Christian is just a, a blanket term, right? It's for people who are religious, people who believe in the Bible. But during this time, In the first century, the name Christian was an insult, right? When you break it down, Christianos, that's, you can imagine where the first part of that name comes from, Christ, right? But the second part actually is used to refer to a slave that's attached to the first part of that word. So when you say Christianos, what you're actually saying more than just Christian is you're saying this person's a slave of Christ. You're calling someone a slave of Christ. Now, in our culture, that word is a very big buzzword, right? It's never been flattering to be called a slave. It's always been very derogatory. Actually, that's the reason why the term is used on believers in the first century. But look at us now. Hey, we're using, I'm proud to be called Christian. The believers in the first century, when they heard that, they knew the connotation behind the word, and yet they took it on, saying, oh, I'd, I'd be proud to be called a slave of Christ. I'd be proud to wash his feet. I'd be proud to be in that house of God. I'd be proud. 
The way that God can turn shame into glory is not just the sins of our past, but how the world views us. God gives us this shield against the ridicule of our culture, against the ridicule of our peers, so that we can go out there, we can preach the gospel of God without feeling ashamed, without feeling embarrassed or shy. This is an ongoing trend in the New Testament. What the world intends for shame, God purposes for glory. We talked a little bit about that with Stephen. He died a criminal's death. We talk about that with Jesus, who died on the cross. The the cross is a symbol of guilt and shame. Where Jesus died, they would post these crucifixions up on high places or by city entrances so that anyone coming in or out of the city would be reminded, don't be like this guy. Because this is how we treat criminals like him. And now look at us. We, we wear it around our, our necks. We put it on our Instagram posts. We put it on our, our church buildings. It's because God has this power to turn what, uh, what the world deems as shameful into glory. Something to find confidence in. Something to be on fire for. God assures us that to be hated and rejected and persecuted by the world for the sake of Jesus is actually an honor. And so our passage actually concludes with Luke uh, sort of zooming out from Antioch and and into, into the global church. And he talks about how this prophet Agabus uh, prophesies about uh, a famine. <laughs> Word escape. A famine that goes on in the world. And it's easy for us, after everything that we've talked about, to overlook some of the golden nuggets that are found in verses 27 to 30. But one of these things, if you've ever wondered, is even the mere mention of Agabus. You know, Scripture does this from time to time. It'll, it'll give you a name that it'll never mention ever again. And it'll give you a date, like the reign of Claudius. And if you're just reading the Bible, you might overlook those little details. But these little details are important. Because what Luke is actually writing about, and, and it's not just Luke, it's other writers in the gospel... And it's all throughout the Old Testament also, is that they date and they write down the location for what is happening. Why? It's because anyone who's reading the book of Acts in the first century, they'll read this and they'll be like, I don't know. That seems kind of kooky. That seems kind of unreal, unbelievable. And so, Luke and other authors in the gospel, in in the New Testament, they'll write in these little dates and locations as a challenge for anyone who doubts. Oh, you don't believe that Jesus can heal the sick? You don't believe that Jesus can heal the blind? Well, go ask Bartimaeus. He's the son of Timaeus. You don't believe that, let me find it here, I have a list. You don't believe that Jesus can 
make the lame walk? Go to Jerusalem. We have four friends that you can talk to, right? They date and time, uh, they date and uh, locate all these places so that people who hear the gospel can go and be like, if I don't believe it, I can go and check for myself. And the reason for that is because for the Christians in the first century, the gospel is real. You know, sometimes at church, sometimes in Bible studies, we, we have a knack of reducing Christianity and our faith to just a list of do's and don'ts. Sometimes we reduce our faith to something that's, oh, this is just my way of living as a good person. And we sometimes neglect or we forget the fact that these stories are real. We neglect the fact that God, in the way that he was alive back then, is alive today. And so what we see in our passage is actually how God is, t- is challenging us to transform our doctrines into action. We saw how the church in Antioch gave to the church in Jerusalem, which is a crazy thing because charity in those times, especially in the Roman times, had nothing to do with helping the needy. And it had all to do with trying to gain political advantage. You know, a rich person wouldn't give if it didn't come back to them in dividends. But what we see is how God uses the church to impact the world around them. How the church in Antioch gives with the means that they have to the church in Jerusalem. And you might be thinking, well, that's just church helping church. How is that making impacts on the world? But if you've been following the sermon series of a church on fire, you know that the nature of the church has always been to give to the needy. It's always been to understand that to give to the poor and to those in need is to give to Jesus. That to share the gospel is to share life. And that to give to Jesus our past and our sin and our shame is to transform that into his glory and into victory. See, it's, it's not enough to know these things, church. But we have to do them also. There's a great number of nominal Christians, Christians who are just sort of on the wayside, who are very knowledgeable, but they're not actionable. The shoes of the Christian to run the race is to both know and to do. That's the way we live out our faith. We often talk about going to church or going to Bible study as our way of refueling spiritually which is great, but if you put your faith in the garage on the other days of the week, well, what's the point? We need to take what's in our hearts and in our minds out into what's in our hands and in our feet. That's how God transforms the church. That's how God transforms death into life, shame into glory, is by transforming the doctrines that we've, we hear about every week 
and taking it outside to our friends who don't know Jesus. Even to our friends who know Jesus, but they're still playing that little dance of like, oh, I I don't want to commit, right? It's us bringing it out there, letting God work through us, letting God use everything, not just our strengths, but our weaknesses to bring people in and give them new life. I'm going to invite the worship team and I, I invite you to pray with me also as we close. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time here today. Father, we we pray that as you've opened our hearts, as you've opened our ears, that we do take what we've learned, what we've been reminded of, outside of these church doors. Father, we pray that you ignite a fire in Emmanuel that you prepare us for a great movement of your Holy Spirit here. We pray that you challenge us, stretch us outward, but also give us the strength and the power to respond with confidence, to be one community, one family under you, and to be great servants, slaves of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Father, because you have already gone before us and you're already clearing out victory ahead of us. And we only need to move forward. In your mighty name, amen.